Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 351st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jessica Polito. Jessica is the founder and principal for Turkey Hill Management, a mergers and acquisitions consulting firm that assists financial advisors with the sale, acquisition, integration, or merger of their advisory firms. What's unique about Jessica, though, is how she has built to practice helping advisors and their firms navigate all the intricacies of buying and selling and merging their firms By deeply understanding business expectations, educating on the transaction process, valuing the firm so that they can get the best deal, and then guiding and providing counsel through the transaction process while doing so without the conflict of the traditional investment banker's success fee. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Jessica leveraged her own investment banking experience in wealth management mergers and acquisitions to build her own business where she could provide more independent M&A advice. Why and how Jessica developed her flat fee advice model for mergers acquisitions to, similar to the evolution of fee-only RIAs, be able to demonstrate that her services are not incentivized by just getting the sale at the end and that she's truly providing advice she feels is in the best interest of her advisor clients. And how Jessica helps her advisor clients parse through the seemingly overwhelming number of potential buyers and understand how to negotiate terms of their agreements so that they can find the right deal for them that aligns with their business goals. We also talk about why Jessica cautions her clients and advisors consider selling their firm to not base their asking price in comparison to what they see deals of other firms getting without context on the price and how those terms were decided. Why Jessica counsels that advisors who want to retire in three to five years need to start not just preparing for sale, but actually beginning the transaction process now, because it can take several years to finalize the deal and then wind down the post-sale retention contingencies. And why Jessica feels that advisors considering a sale in the more distant future should actually spend less time trying to go through the laundry list of updates their firms to extract top value and instead just focus on doing what's right for their business that keeps it on a healthy growth track because that growth is ultimately what makes the business most attractive whenever it is time to sell. And be certain to listen to the end where Jessica shares why, because she works on her own, she has to be intentional about the number of clients that she works with at any given time so that she can both provide dedicated service and preserve time with her own family. How Jessica dealt with imposter syndrome and the fear of being compared to larger institutions with longer histories by investing in developing and sharing her own thought leadership through podcasts and videos and conferences. And why Jessica defines success differently for her professional and personal lives and that professionally success is a moving target because she feels that without new goals, you can become complacent and limit yourself. But personally, success is about continuing to build the business, especially in a male-dominated industry, and take chances so that her children can see that she kept trying even though it meant she might fail and ultimately that she's been able to make something she's proud of. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jessica Polito. Welcome, Jessica Polito, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really excited about today's episode and, and getting to, I guess, nerd out a little bit on mergers, acquisitions, buying firms, selling firms, all the all the different ways that advisory firms are, are kind of changing hands and, and, and ownership these days. Cause it's, to me, it's, 
it's an interesting dynamic from the advisor end. You, most of us spend our careers, kind of our, our, our working lifetimes building these advisory businesses. Uh, they, can, they can have very substantial economic enterprise value. And you, you, you really only get one chance to, to sell it and do it right. And that also means kind of by definition, basically everybody who sells an advisory firm has never done it before. So like really important lifetime investment, high stakes, zero experience to me basically <laughs> sets like not the best environment for making good decisions. No pressure, uh, huh? <laughs> no pressure at all. And then, and then you get thrust into this world of... Um, investment bankers and deal makings and term sheets and LOIs and 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 M and A just kind of has a, like a, a jargon of its own, and so I think today, like my, I don't know, my goal and excitement is to just get to to demystify that end a little. I know you you work in that domain. You've come from an investment banking background. You have what I think is actually a very interesting, like not technically investment banking, but consulting for advisors kind of structure to helping advisors through this. And and to me, just it's a good opportunity, I hope, to help more advisors understand just how all this stuff really works. So maybe as you go into this for the first time and only time that you may be selling your business, you're not going in totally, totally blind and struggling in trying to figure out how to, how to do it right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is kind of, you know, outside of my day job, right? That is kind of my goal is really kind of removing the gatekeeping aspect of uh, m and I mean, it's funny when I get a new client, um, he's like, well, I, I, don't, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never done this before. And I'm like, yeah, of course you don't. That's why you're hiring someone to help you. <laughs> you know, it's the same reason that I don't manage my own assets. Like there is a whole separate jargon and and understanding that comes with doing your day job. And that's why, you know, that's why people hire you to do what you do. So there's no expectation or there shouldn't be an expectation going into a transaction that you know what you're doing. You know, the advisor's job is to represent their company as best they can, uh, which they should, right? Like you should be proud of the business that you've built and, you know, you should really care about your employees and your clients and, when it comes time to sell your business, you should be able to find an advisor who knows what they're doing, understands the industry, and cares about you the same way that you care about your clients. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm happy to educate the public as much as possible on, you know, what does a sale process actually look like? What is an EBITDA multiple? And when I hear that my neighbor got 18 times further business, what does that actually mean? Um, and, you know, like what, how should I position myself best for a sale? Or, you know, how do I know if the time is right? Or any of the un other hundreds of questions that go through successful founders' minds before and during a sale. So, so I, I think I'd love to 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 just start right there. You know, if 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 I'm an advisor and I'm I'm you know I'm approaching that point of you know I think I may want to sell this thing. Like I'm I'm kind of getting the point where I I know it's valuable. Just don't really know if I want to keep doing this anymore. Um, uh, you know, business has gotten complex. I don't really do all the things I like to do anyways because there's more people and stuff that I got to deal with. And like. Maybe I'm ready just to be done with this and sell it. It seems like there's a lot of buying activity, and I really never thought the business was going to be worth as much as I kind of hear it is if I apply some industry rule of the multiples. Like, I think it might be time, and I literally don't even know where to start. 
start? Like, do I just like, <laughs> do I just look up some of the big firms in the industry publications that buy and like call their one eight hundred number and say like I'm I'm thinking about selling. Can you connect me to the people who write buying checks? Like, <laughs> I need money, where, please. <laughs> like, where do you Where do you even start? Um, well, I would say probably, you know, what not to do is exactly what you said. Um, and I guess there are a few reasons. One, um, you know, if if you are dealing directly with a buyer, especially, you know, a prolific buyer, right? One that you've probably heard about in the news and that's why you know the name or, you know, it's one of the major aggregators whose names you've heard over and over again. I mean, they're, they're deal machines. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, they're deal machines because because they have a compelling story and a great growth story and they're very good firms. Um, but they also have, you know, standard templates and a way that they do deals. And, um, you know, a lot of the terminology and jargon that go into deal making are, as we just said, unfamiliar to, you know, your average entrepreneur. Um, and without knowing what to look out for or what's market or, yeah. you know, just industry standards, it's easy to, I don't, like, I was going to say take it, be taken advantage of, but I think that's even too strong of a word because it is not a buyer's intent to take advantage yeah, of a seller. Right. But you yeah, know, it, you, it's you, not necessarily nefarious, but just, you are, it's a you're, good you're point. At you the are putting of, yourself into an environment of, so just to be clear, like you have all the money. I want the money. Right. You, you've done this lots of times. I literally have no idea what I'm doing. Right. Let's have a fair negotiation. Well, not even Probably that, right? Probably not going to work out in the best of contexts. Yeah. I mean, it'll work out. It just won't necessarily be, you know, perhaps what the person next to you was able right. to get, you know, and not even from an economic standpoint, you know, if, if they say, well, you know, our standard is to have a five-year non-compete tail on your employment contract once you leave and you're like okay well if you say it's standard it's standard and then you find out that someone else negotiated it down to one year you're just like oh shoot <laughs> you uh -huh. know um so i think that's that's kind of like one off right and then i think where some people find themselves in a real pickle is when they start negotiating more than one at the same time you know they're like these three firms have been calling me over and over again one of them is a huge aggregator one of them is my neighbor you know one of them is a firm that i heard of that sounded interesting so i reached out to them and they're running their business they're managing their clients and their their relationships and and on top of that they're also trying to like solicit proposals <laughs> from like more than one firm and they're like i don't have enough time in the day i don't understand what i'm doing like i'm completely underwater and like help you know, this firm wants me to sign an LOI, but I haven't even met with another firm. So sometimes it's helpful to just bring in an advisor just to help streamline the process and herd the cats. Um, even if you've already started having conversations on your own, um, just, just to kind of, you know, have a person whose job it is to take that off your plate and, and make it manageable and help you digest everything that's being thrown at you when you're like, I don't know, I, I think I already signed an NDA with this one firm and I've I provided financials, but I actually don't think I signed one with them. And, you know, it becomes, becomes a lot <laughs> to have to take on by yourself, having never done it before while also doing your day job. Well, and to me, you, you raise an interesting, uh, uh, sort of point in context around this as well, which is for a lot of advisory firms of 
of any particular size as much as I sort of jokingly highlighted like, well, I guess I can look up the popular buyers online and and um you know and and, and like get their contact information on their website and call them. In practice, there's so much buying activity, like the overwhelming majority of advisory firms I talk to that have anything north of a few hundred million dollars under management in particular, like you know who the people are because they've called you and emailed you already. Like they're the buyers are searching so hard for deals that a lot of advisory firms are already getting inbound interest or inbound nibbles like hey if you're ever thinking about selling like here's my contact information well, give me a in- call the interesting thing is that it's become it's become so competitive and owners have become so inundated with inbounds that it almost uh, to several sellers that I talked to has just become almost like white noise um you know I was talking to someone the other day who was like you know I let me read you the names of the firms that have emailed me this week. And, you know, they're telling me and they're like, I don't even know which one of these is an investment bank, which one is private equity, which one is a buyer. All of them are just like emailing me, trying to get me to respond to them. And I I don't even know what I'm, what conversations I'm supposed to be having with them. Like which ones are going to pay me? Which ones do I have to pay? Like there's so much out here. I just, I just ignore all of it because it's too much. And I mean, this goes to a whole broader conversation that I don't think we're having today, which is, you know, as a, as a buyer, how do you stand out from the crowd? Because sellers are so overwhelmed with all of the inbounds, plus the news articles, plus, you know, the conferences and everywhere else that they're, you know, the touch points, right? Um, That, yeah, I mean, you know, even if you know who the players are, you might not actually know who the players are. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. At just some point, they all all kind of sound familiar. I've heard all these names. In the the vein of what you said, though, maybe we can even just help take a moment and just demystify that. So when you're getting like, there's there's PEs and there's family offices and there's a- aggregators and there's like other local buyers and there's investment banks and all these people reaching out. It's like t- to your comments, like who pays me and who do I pay? Like, can you just <laughs> un- unsort those different or I guess sort those different categories for us, for, for folks that just aren't familiar with all these different uh, labels? Yeah, I mean, I think they just they fit into two broad categories, right? So an M&A advisor, whether it's a, you know, a consultant, an investment bank, um, you know, you're paying them, you're paying them to help you with the sale of your business. And then and then everyone else, right? Like the people down the street, the private equity firms, uh, the integrators, the aggregators, you know, the the larger wealth management firms that might be reaching out to you, they want to buy your firm. Or they're, you know, they're, they're interested in having the conversation so, to see if it makes sense. So when I get PE or REA aggregator name, I know like that's, that's a deal. They, they literally want to buy me directly. If I'm getting some outreach from so-and-so at an, at an investment bank, they don't actually want to buy me. They want to represent me for sale. They exactly. want to, they want to shop me. They want to get, they want to get me out there. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. In in very broad terms, right? I mean, you know, the in, the investment banker wants to understand your business and see if it makes sense, you know, for you guys to work together and then understand, you know, have you already had conversations? What's your appetite for going out and talking to, you know, five firms, 10 firms, 20 firms, you know, 40 firms? I don't know. Um, that- 
kind of sounds exhausting. It sounds exhausting. (laughs) Um, And then on the other side, right, the private equity firms for some of the larger firms, and then, you know, the the, um, larger wealth management firms, you know, insurance companies, whatever, want to have a conversation with you to understand Mm. if you could possibly be a good fit as an acquisition target for them to buy you and and have you be part of their organization. So can you help us understand that buyer landscape then a little bit further? I mean, you're, you're kind of mentioning like aggregators and insurance companies and PE firms. And, and I know in practice, like they, they do show up a little bit differently, both in terms of buying and then just what, what they want to do and what it looks like after the sale. Can can you help us just understand a little bit more of these like subcategories of buyers that are out there today? Sure. So private equity tends to invest in larger organizations if they're doing a direct investment. So they will they will likely target firms with a handful of billion under management plus. Um, and they're usually going to take a minority stake in the business, uh, sometimes majority. Um, and Primarily, what they're looking to do is infuse capital into your business to help with growth. Um, so, whether that is to help um, fund acquisitions or do internal investments, you know, in your technology or your marketing, um, or to make some key hires. Um, sometimes they'll help, you know, if, if there's a founder who needs to take some chips off the table or whatever. Um, but really, their goal is to come in and grow the business and then, you know, whatever their time horizon is, whether it's three years or five years or seven years or longer, you know, eventually make a profit on the business um, for themselves and for their their investors. Um, well, and so there's a, a good thing I, I think that you highlighted there from the from the PE firms and because they want to is your firm like they want to infuse capital into the business to help with growth because they want to grow a bunch over their three, five, seven year time horizon. This tends to be less about, I'll put it in the air quotes, just like just cashing a founder out who wants to take chips off the table. It sounds like that's like, that might be part of the deal, but that's not the center of the deal if you're talking to a PE firm. Typically. I mean, it could also be, you know, they're helping to bring in next gen, right? Who maybe can't afford to buy out the founder. Right, who are very you sure. know capable and have all of these plans for growth in the future, but you know just just like literally cannot pay for the equity that the founder is trying to get rid of because the company is too valuable. So right. that could be an example um, where you know it, they are, I guess, technically helping someone take chips off the table, um, but it is uh, you're right for for kind of like a greater good, which is to help grow the company. And in this case, it would be help grow the company by bringing in next gen who can, you know, fuel the future growth of the business. Okay. So that's um, the, that's okay, so the that's private equity. domain. Okay. Um, okay. So now I guess that helps <laughs> the launching pad for a handful of the other conversations. I'm, okay. I assume a lot of, a lot of your listenership knows and maybe not private equity has been very active in the wealth management space over the past few years. Um, so what that has done is it has created a larger pool of buyers um, who now have money from private equity to go out and do acquisitions. So, some of these are aggregators and some of these are integrators. Um, I think that might be the next best place to go. Um, okay. So integrators are firms that 
purchase other RIAs and as the term might, might imply, integrate them into their business. You know, they'll take over their back office. Um, you know, sometimes they'll take over their investments. Uh, they'll take over, you know, I mean, everything that you did not start your business to do, right? They'll run your payroll. They'll make sure that your, you know, insurance plans and 401k are, you know, going the way they're supposed to. They'll um, they'll help with marketing. Um, and they'll really kind of leave you to do what most wealth managers want to do with the majority of their time, which is serve their clients. Um, and, you know, in, in some or many or, you know, the majority of cases, um, bring in new clients in a way that they couldn't before because they were so busy, you know, doing their quarterly filings and, you know, yeah. talking to the guys at Adapar to make sure that their subscription isn't, you know, too expensive or whatever. Right. right. Um, and then on the other side, you have aggregators who will buy companies either a hundred percent or not um, and kind of leave them alone for the most part for the most part, you know, they'll take over cybersecurity and compliance, um, you know, things to make sure that, that no one gets in trouble, right? Um, but but they will let them continue to run their business by and large as it was before. Um, but they will provide them with assistance on, you know, future acquisitions or, you know, succession planning or, you know, hiring needs or what, whatever it is that the firm couldn't really do on their own um, that made having a parent company look attractive to them. So so in a aggregator end, especially if they may be buying as much as a hundred percent, this this feels like a, you know, the the founder wants out and probably isn't continuing. Uh uh there may be some successor leaders who can take over clients and or manage the the practice, but they don't necessarily have the financial wherewithal to buy the practice. So we're going to have an aggregator who writes the check that the founder needs, but leaves the business largely kind of whole and intact for the successor leaders to continue to run the firm and grow it from there. Am yeah, I, am I, that, that could am be I the thinking case. about that well? It, it could be the case. It could also be that the founder is, you know, 50 and, you know, has done really well and just you know, doesn't have the capital to reinvest in the business to take it from, you know, 500 million to a billion or a billion to 5 billion or whatever, and just kind of needs, needs a parent to help them, you know, with economies of scale on the technology front or, or, you know, doesn't have a next gen, um, but the parent company has an amazing, you know, recruiting team or, you know, like there, there are so many different reasons why an aggregator or an integrator or private equity could could be an interesting solution for a seller. Yeah. Um, well, you know, un unfortunately, there's not like a very easy way to say like, okay, well, if you meet these three criteria, then this yeah. is the buyer for you. <laughs> like, yeah, that would yeah, make I, our job a lot easier. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, it, I get yeah. I'm just trying to figure out like general contours, though, right? Because just some of that gets to you know, that nature of that, you know, an aggregator, They'll buy the equity, but they tend to leave you alone. So, a just circumstances where you want to sell all the equity, but you but you still want to otherwise kind of hang out on your own. And I contrast that out to integrators, right? It's like, where am I likely getting integrated or just wanting or willing to get integrated? Either, uh, you know, I'm an advisor who doesn't really want to do all the business stuff anymore. I just want to get back to the client things that I liked in the first place. But I got some time horizon. Like, I don't. I'm not. I'm not trying to exit like my career, I'm not trying to um, retire, 
I may be happy to continue, but either I don't want to manage all the businessy stuff anymore, I want to get back to clients and maybe take some chips off the table, or I'm ready to exit entirely. And the reality is there aren't people who can keep running this without me. Like maybe I've got a good team that does the doing things and the client serving, but there's not a there's not a next line of leadership there. So if I'm leaving, I really have to sell and integrate into something that can create that systems and infrastructure that my firm wouldn't have after I leave. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's well said. Um, but I think you know, since since we're talking about you know cases where a founder wants to step back, I think it's important to lay a foundation of what step back actually means. <laughs> you know, like if you're if you're contemplating retiring in the next three to five years, this is the time to sell your business because as soon as you hit go on a sale process, it takes several months to sell your business. Right. So, you know, if you're 60, you'll probably sell your business close to your 61st birthday. And then a buyer is going to want you, assuming that you have the majority of the client relationships, to stick around for, you know, at least two years, but probably more like three, um, to make sure that your clients have been transitioned appropriately. Because if they're going to pay you all this money for your business, which is, there are no assets, right? It's just, relationships <laughs> like and they're going to pay you you know maybe the majority of the the worth of your business up front they're going to want to make sure that they get what they pay for right? right like if you sell your business and you walk away four months later your clients are going to be like I, I have no idea what just happened but you know if the guy who's been managing my assets for the last 25 years is walking away i probably should too yeah you know they're going to want you to stick around they're going to want your clients to feel comfortable. They're going to want to make sure that whoever it is that you're transitioning your relationships to has sat in on several quarters worth of meetings and is now starting to answer the phone when your clients call. And I mean, as every advisor knows, like it takes time to build a relationship and to build trust. Um, so, you know, if you're selling your business, at, if, you, if you're thinking about selling your business at 60 because you want to retire, you're probably not going to retire until, you know, 64. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the like if you want to retire in three to five years, you should be starting the process now because you need to recognize the time it takes to do the deal and how long a buyer is likely going to want you to stick around on the other end to really make sure clients transition or because you're going to have a contingency that you don't get the full payment until unless <laughs> all the clients transition, which means you will want to stick around to the end of that uh, contingency period. So yes, from a from a economic standpoint, that's a hundred percent right. So most buyers do not pay a hundred percent of deal value upfront. Um, there are two ways to ensure that they are, as I was saying, kind of like getting what they're paying for. The first would be a retention payment, which tends to get paid at the end of the first year give or take. Um, and that truly is taking a look at the list of clients that existed when the deal closed and taking a look at how many of them are still there a year later and assuming that the vast majority of them are still there, which they often, often, often tend to be, then you receive, you know, another, another slug of the deal value. Um, the other, and these are not mutually exclusive, though sometimes they can be, is an earnout. And those are based on growth. Um, and those tend to be, you know, two or three years out after a deal closes, um, which basically says like, you know, if you can hit this hurdle, you're going to get X dollars. If you can hit this growth hurdle, you're going to get Y dollars. And if you hit 
you know, this growth hurdle, you're going to get Z dollars. So it incentivizes the advisors not only to stick around, but to continue growing their business the way that they had, um, you know, before they, before they sold the business. Well, and I, I, I think to, to me, that's a, that's a good spot to highlight um, because I, you know, just the, these dynamics of what you see in either industry news headlines or the proverbial or, or actual like gossip and whispers about, you know, my, my buddy got so-and-so deal. Like, look at that, look at that multiple, look at that valuation that I, I find at least, at least from my experience, a lot of the time I hear these a number like the, these scenarios where people got really big numbers. If you actually get to drill into the deal terms, what you find out is a very material portion of it is an earnout, and the earnout is tied to a really significant growth assumption. Right. And so it's like, you know, wow, they got whatever numbers you know, they they got twelve times their earnings as a mid-sized firm. That's a really big number, and then to get in there, I'm like, well. Yeah, because it had an earnout that had like twenty percent annual growth threshold, right? Excluding really, market, really, right? <laughs> yeah, excluding market, which, right. which means which means no. Like the reality is, they got that multiple because they sold a business that's forty percent bigger than it currently is, and they have two years to actually make it forty percent bigger than it currently is. And if they don't, that number's not actually happening. That's not what they got for the value of the sort of the proverbial value of the business today, that's like a prepayment of the next 40% growth that they only keep if they actually get the 40% growth. And if you make them 40% bigger, now that multiple doesn't look so large because it's really just like a value of what it would be worth 40% larger two years from now that they prepaid today. Yeah. Well, okay. So first of all, thank you for bringing this up because I feel yeah. like I I am constantly ex- like screaming this from the rooftops, right? I'm like a multiple without explanation is meaningless, right? I mean, exactly what you said, you know, you can, you can hop onto the golf course and tell your friend that you sold your business for 12 times, but you know, unless you also tell them, okay, but yeah, I mean, it's 12 times, but you know, it was eight times up front. And then exactly what you said, you know, well, I have to grow at 20% a year for three years, excluding market to get to, to 12 times at the end of three years. But, you know, it's 12 times, <laughs> right? And yeah. it's like, well, I mean, it's but, not, yeah. it's yeah, not, you know, um, great. Uh-huh. right. Maybe it's more like, you know, nine or 10 times because in all likelihood, you know, you're going to grow at 10% a year like you have for the last 20 years, right? Um, but that doesn't sound as good and that doesn't make headlines the same way. Um so yeah, but I think something that I just I want to something that you said that I think I just want to clarify something that something that you might have been alluding to or maybe I misunderstood what you were saying. What we don't see in this industry very often are clawback provisions. So okay. um and, and maybe maybe that's not what you were saying, but the whole the whole notion of prepayment doesn't right. typically exist. So typically it's kind of what I just outlined. You're paying, you know, a multiple upfront for the business with the opportunity to earn right. more later on. It's not like net present value and pay yeah. out all yeah, upfront. So yeah, I want, that's, you know. that's why you get these earnout provisions. Like exactly, right? Like exactly. I got tw- I got twelve times I got twelve times my earnings. Like cool, how did that actually work? Well, I exactly. got eight, I got eight upfront, and then I get another 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 two times earnings in a year if I hit twenty percent, another two times earnings after that if I hit another twenty percent growth. Right. So it adds up to twelve. I'm like. 
No, basically, like you sold your business for eight times earnings. And then if you stick around and grow up by 20% a year, they're giving a piece of the 20% growth. And if you don't actually get the growth, then you really just got eight. Right. And like, that's a cool number. But like, don't tell me that you got 12 when it's tied to all these contingencies that you have not accomplished yet. And even if you do, it's not really 12 times what you are today. It's going to end up being like eight or nine times what you would be in two years after you did all the growth contingencies. Well, it depends, right? It depends <laughs> if it depends if the future multiples are being paid on closing EBITDA or EBITDA at the time of the payment, right? Um, but I mean, that's that's really kind of getting into like the nitty gritty. Yeah. But I think I think I think the point that both of us are trying to make is yeah. you didn't get twelve times; you have the potential to earn up to twelve times. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> right. And so, that is like a huge distinction. Like you have guaranteed the sale of your business for what you get upfront, and then there are kickers if you're able to yeah. achieve. And I think you know part. Part of an M&A advisor's job is exactly what we're doing right now, which is to educate the seller to understand what they can actually get, and then and then it's up to the seller. You know, some people some people have faith in the market and are like, no, we have to include market in these future payments because you know I'm pretty positive. You know, if you look at historical returns of the S and P, you know, over the course of three years, the market's going to be higher than it is today. And others are like, there's an election coming up. You know, there's a there's a war in Russia. Like, I, we can't include the market. Anything can happen. <laughs> you know, like we have to yep. take it out. And there's no right or wrong answer there. It's it's completely up to the individual. The same way that some people are more risk averse in general and, and say, you know, I can't, I, I need as much guaranteed as possible. So if it means that the multiple has to be lower, but it starts at 0% growth, you know, I'll take it, you know, because I, I feel pretty good that I can stay flat for two years and achieve like some yep. small portion of the earnout. And others are like, I've been growing like gangbusters every year. Why would I start at zero? Like get me a higher multiple and put that hurdle at you know, 7% growth because I know I'm going to blow it out of the water. You know, there, there's no standard and, you know, buyers tend to be accommodating to a point, right? Um, you know, because ultimately, I mean, the hope is that the, the person that you end up with, the firm that you end up selling your business to is someone who, you know, has a common belief in who you are and your ability to do what you say you're going to do um and you know is willing is willing to understand your perspective um and as long as it makes financial sense in their models and all that you know there there are negotiations to be had around you know what an earnout should look like if there even is an earnout and that's the exciting part of my job right it's just they're all they're all completely different and it's it's yeah. interesting getting to know people and understanding their risk preferences and you know what's important to them and how much they believe in themselves and their future growth and their partner and their partner's ability to help them grow right. um it's great it's like it's you know a little bit of little bit of m a advisory a little bit of psychology <laughs> yeah it's a lot of fun <laughs> so in this theme around like the these like prices or headline multiples that you hear, like there could be a lot of fine print attached to that about what it really takes to get that. That may may or may not really mean kind of the number is the number. Uh, I'd love like if you can educate us, like what other kinds of terms get attached or negotiated out there that are like the you know the context to a price that you should be aware of when you hear people either throw numbers around or on a price or or you're or you're getting an offer and and trying to understand it right like to me one of these is 
okay, well, you can talk about the number, but you're probably not really getting that number up front. There may be retentions or earnouts. They could have growth hurdles, which means there might be a lot more to do to really get that number. So what other kinds of terms, conditions, fine print stuff shows up that maybe advisors don't don't realize in reflecting why you know price alone is not the great indicator of who got a better deal? Uh, okay, I have two answers to that question. Okay. I think the first, just on the economic side, um, is you, you don't know what the baseline EBITDA is. So, you know, when when I'm when I'm helping a firm through a sale process, assuming that we're not just doing like a one-off negotiation, right? We've actually gone to market and maybe we've received, you know, seven or ten proposals, is taking a look at all of the proposals and and looking at them on an apples to apples basis. So if your EBITDA that we put as your pro forma run rate is a million dollars, right? Um, we have gone through your PL and we've said, oh, okay, you know, Mr. Smith, like you've only been paying yourself $50,000 a year. Um, no one is going to pay you $50,000 a year because you're the CEO of a company. So we have to normalize your income to market level. So, you know, maybe you have to be, you know, $250,000 because that's your replacement cost. Oh, you've been, you know, running your personal automobile <laughs> through the business. Let's remove that because that's mm-hmm. not going to happen you right. know, once you do a deal, right? So we're normalizing your income statement and we're giving that to all the buyers. It's up to the buyers when they submit proposals to look at that income statement and say, oh, $250,000 actually doesn't work at our firm. You have to be paid $400,000. Or, oh, you know, all of our partner firms receive, you know, an allocation for the technology and marketing that we do. We're going to ding you by, you know, 200 grand or whatever. My point is they're all going to come up with their own EBITDA number on which they're going to put the multiple. So okay. you may have a firm who puts a 10 times multiple on your business and leaves your EBITDA as is. And then another firm who puts a 12 times multiple on your firm, but knocked you down $300,000 in EBITDA. Okay. <laughs> right? So not every multiple, even just like off the jump in your own process is created equal. Because they could end up, you know, a higher multiple could end up yielding a lower deal value right. if you're starting off of a lower point. Okay. So even when you're receiving proposals, it's not just like, well, what are they going to pay me? It's like, what are they going to pay me on? Okay. Okay. So that so at least for better or worse, if I get it down to a a pricey price, you know, these these folks are offering me seven million dollars. These folks are offering me eight million dollars. I can at least start to compare seven versus eight. But if I'm just going to look and say these these folks are offering me ten times EBITDA and these folks are offering me twelve times EBITDA. It's like, well, how did you Are calculate they, EBITDA? Right. Right? <laughs> exactly, like, exactly. EBITDA in the version of your quote. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, that's not even that's not even comparing yourself to what's in the market. That's that's just comparing one proposal to another. Okay. Um, but then, I mean, in terms of of like, did you get a good deal? Right. I mean, price is just one of the many, many, many factors that goes into whether or not a deal is good for you. You know, and the reality is the price will be fine. You know, like you're not going to sell to a firm who doesn't understand market or maybe you will, but you know, you've come to terms with the fact that you're leaving a bunch of money on the table because they feel like they're the right fit otherwise. But, you know, assuming, assuming we're in like a, a relative standard deviation from, you know, the other market terms that you've received, right. It's like, okay, well then let's look at your employment agreements. 
you know, I was saying this earlier, right? You know, do they want you to sign a five-year non-compete? You know, if you're taking equity as part of the deal, are they going to let you have a liquidity event whenever you want? Or is it locked up for 10 years or unless you die? Or do your non-compete start over again if there is a liquidity event? <laughs> And now you're locked back in for another three years or, you know, like there, there, there are so purchase agreements tend to be, you know, 60 to 70 pages long. And the economic part is, you know, one section. So once you get into those negotiations, I mean, a lot of it comes down to having a good M&A attorney too, you know, to look through the reps yep. and warranties and the indemnifications and all that and make sure that, um, you know, you're not indemnifying yourself to anything that you shouldn't be, <laughs> you know, and if something really, really bad were to happen, you know, are you on the hook for more than so, what you received for the value of your business, um, you know, or so for for advisors who just never been through this even, like quick primer, like what is reps and warranties and indemnification sections? Oh. Like what, what are those covering? Good question. So reps and warranties, it's representations and warranties. It's really representing that you're selling the business the way that you have represented it. You know, like if, if uh, well, and they go hand in hand with indemnifications because it's basically saying, you know, if a year from now we found out that you've been insider trading this whole time, you know, we're not on the hook for that. You, you have to deal with the SEC and, you know, whatever fines come your way are your problem, right? Because you've represented to us that you have not been insider trading. Um, or, you know, if we find out, you know, that you haven't been paying your taxes, right? And the IRS comes, af comes after us because you haven't paid your taxes in three years, we're not responsible for paying the taxes that you never paid. That's, that's your okay. problem. So a lot, a lot of this falls in the domain of... You know, if there was stuff going on before we bought that could create liability for the business after we buy it, that ain't our liability after exactly. we buy it. Like you gotta you gotta hold on to whatever exposures you created before you sold it to us. Exactly. Exactly. And it, I mean, you know, to be clear, it's not like, you know, well, if the S P goes down, you know, you owe us money kind of thing. This is like if you've been if you've been doing something that is fundamentally different than what you provided to us during due diligence. Right that is your fault and <laughs> like you're liable. Okay. You know, but I think when you're, when you're thinking about, you know, just like a good partnership, right? Like what goes into, what should, what should the average advisor be looking at when they receive a proposal? It's one, you know, are, are the economic terms fair, right? Is my ability to earn whatever comes in the future, you know, not crazy, you know, can I actually, do I actually think I stand a shot at earning them? <laughs> Yep. Um, what do the employment terms look like for me and my employees? You know, are, are people who aren't receiving money proceeds from a transaction, are they also tied to, you know, two-year non-competes? Or, you know, what, what we see a lot is, you know, you have you have a founder who owns 95% of the business, and then you have, you know, two other people who each own two and a half percent. Right, um, so they're receiving proceeds, but they're not receiving life-changing proceeds, right? Right. But they're still tied to the same restrictive covenants as the founder who's receiving ninety-five percent of the proceeds. And you know, then it's kind of like, well, what are what are we doing here? You know, if these people are receiving a few hundred thousand dollars, like obviously that's great, but you can't force them to sit out for two years after they leave the firm mm -hmm. because they don't have the money sitting well, in their bank yeah. account to allow them to do that, right? Well, um, except, except 
I mean, I hate to say it, like, except can you? Because as you noted, like, if the founder owns 95%, like, they can sign this, right? Like, to our our ju- proverbial junior advisors, junior partners, like, uh, how at risk are they for getting dragged along in deals like this? Or are there are there steps they can take to protect themselves on that? I mean, hopefully not, right? I mean, if you're at a point in your career where you own equity in the firm that you're working at, I mean, you would hope, and I've yet to be proven wrong here, that the person who owns the lion's share is like a pretty good person (laughs) and isn't going to sign a deal if it means that they're going to, you know, put the person that they provided with, you know, 5% or 2.5% of the equity in financial ruin (laughs) in a a case where they decide to leave or if they get fired. Um, And, you know, no no good M&A advisor and no good M&A attorney would allow something like that to happen. Okay. So what else are the like, I'm just thinking like the, 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 I almost view this as the, the terms that inexperienced advisors don't realize they can or should be negotiating. Like I'm hearing, uh, you know, some of the financial contingencies, right? Oh, you want that multiple, but what has to go with it? Like that becomes a negotiating point. Employment agreements and non-competes and term, you know, duration and such after the deal closes is a lever. Reps and warranties maybe is an area, although probably one your attorney has to help yeah, you navigate. Yeah, later not, on, right? That you're doesn't... Not, you're, yeah, you're not negotiating that stuff up front. Yeah. What, yeah. what else crops up as like the, the levers that get negotiated? Um, compensation, not just for you know, the, the founder or seller, but for everyone, you know, making sure that no one is getting paid less, making sure that, you know, bonuses are guaranteed for a year or two, um, you know, to really just kind of making sure that everyone's lives are not impacted for the negative um, once a deal is done. And then I think, I, I you know, it's simplifying it, but I would say kind of like everything else, right? Every advisor has different sticking points and things that are important right. to them. And, you know, m- this may or may not appear in an LOI, um, but it's equally important, even if it's not necessarily in writing, right? It's understanding, you know, if we're going to integrate, what does integration look like? What's the expectation on me? You know, some people care deeply about their investment process, right? And want to make sure that before they sign an LOI and start working in earnest to get a deal done, you know, no one's going to come in over the top and be like, all right, well, you have six months after we close to sell all your holdings and, you know, enter into our, you know, buy sell, buy sell list, right? Or like, you know, into our, our five models or whatever. Some people are like, I'm not in this for investments. I'm in this for, you know, managing relationships. You know, as, as long as you tell me that I'm not going to have huge tax consequences for my clients, you know, I kind of trust you guys to, you know, take it from here. Um some people, you know, really care about growth and marketing. Um, so, you know, understanding the engines behind that um, and whether a partner can actually help them grow. Some people don't want help growing. You know, some people are like, oh, well, you know, we've never been in, you know, a referral network before. We don't want to start fielding three referrals a week because, you know, you're number one on fidelity and, you know, now now I have to spend a lot of my time every week vetting new clients. Right. Um, you know, I, I mean, I can I can kind of like go on and on yeah. and on uh, because every advisor is, is different and their wants and needs are different. But I think you know, it really comes down to having enough conversations with a potential partner to 
feel comfortable that they're going to take care of you. Oh, I guess another one is fees. Um, you know, making sure that you know the partner is not going to force you to raise your client fees as soon as um, a deal is done. But some people, some people are like, well, you know what? I have a handful of legacy clients who I've been charging 40 basis points for, and I've been looking for an excuse to increase my fees. Uh-huh. So like, you know, great. Like when I have them sign new investment management contracts, I'll, uh-huh. you know, I'll increase their fees to 65 basis points. This is great. You know, it, it all, it all depends. Right. Um, right. But what, whatever it is that's important to you, like this is not the time to be shy. You know, it's, it, this is the time to really, really dig in and make sure that, they're answering your questions. And if you ask it and they don't answer it the right way, ask it again. Ask someone else. Ask two more people. Talk to someone who sold their business to the company a year ago. And then talk to someone who sold their business to the company three years ago. And, you know, get their experience. Um, you know, did they live up to everything that they promised me? Um, have you found that, you know, they're easy to work with? Have you found that they're forcing you to do things that they told you they wouldn't? Um you know, inform yourself. This is a really, really important decision. So you'd commented earlier that it tends to be less about price per se, only because there's enough buying activity and competition out there that most buyers who are familiar with market are going to give you at least a reasonably market-ish uh, price. That's great for as you noted, like kind of the, the firms that are deal machines that are serial deal makers, like they know what the going rate is because they've bid on a bunch of them in competitive situations against others who they're bidding on as well. Yep. <laughs> uh, right. As the prospective seller, I've never done this before. I've never seen the numbers. I at best only see the random things I hear in the media or one offs where, you know, this person got eight times their earnings, this person got 12 times their earnings, this person got 21 times their earnings, this person got valued uh, uh, of X times their revenue. Like We hear numbers all over the place, I feel like in practice, and that there's not really a lot of clarity about what is quote unquote market for the average advisor who doesn't live a steady stream of deals. They're only selling their own firm once and for the first time. So can you help anchor us a little bit of just what are realistic expectations? Like, should I be thinking in terms of revenue or, or, or EBITDA, or does that depend on size? What kinds of multiples should I expect? And I know you can't pin down to an exact number. So like what, what levers impact, uh, impacted, like just help us get oriented on realistic valuation. I'll just call it neighborhoods. Again, no one's getting precisely valued off a podcast is help get us the right neighborhoods. So I think, you know, as far as your question on, you know, do you place the multiple on revenue or do you place the multiple on EBITDA? I think that's a great place to start. Um, typically, wealth management firms are valued as a multiple of EBITDA. And the reason for that is because expenses can vary wildly from firm to firm. So, you know, for easy math's sake, right? Let's say you have $2 billion firms, right? And each of them are charging 70 basis points on average, right? So that's $700,000 of revenue. If you put a multiple of revenue on both of those firms, they're going to end up with the same price, right? But maybe, you know, one of those firms, um, you know, has five people and 
you know, they're in, uh, you know, the middle of nowhere in the middle of the country where their expenses are low and average salaries are lower. Um, and, you know, they're just kind of like happy bopping along. They've gotten $2 billion. Everyone's happy. They have 60% margins, right? And then you have the other firm who is in New York City and they're on Madison huh. Avenue and, you know, they're actually employing 15 people and, you know, they're using top of the line technology and they have 15% margins. Right. By putting a multiple of revenue on both of those firms, you are like wildly overvaluing Right. What you're going to get in returns from that second firm with 15% margins, right? right? So EBITDA is kind of like the great equalizer. Um, if you put the same EBITDA multiple on these firms, you're going to get very different price points. So that is why typically EBITDA multiples are what gets used overall to value firms. Um, they, there are obviously circumstances where that doesn't work. So for example, like if a firm is losing money, you can't right. put a multiple on a negative number. <laughs> Right. So you have to use a revenue multiple um, or, you know, if a firm is brand new or, you know, is going through aggressive growth or, you know, some, something, right, where their EBITDA doesn't accurately reflect the like future value of the business, um, you would want to use a revenue multiple there too. The other time that revenue multiples are useful is if a firm is being bought and integrated, it becomes hard to figure out what the EBITDA number is later on, right. um, you know, because the, the buyer might be allocating costs to them or, you know, what, whatever else. So when you're thinking about earnouts, often you see those being revenue-based just because it's a much easier number to track, especially if you're, you know, excluding market, right? It's a lot easier to take a look at your revenues and be like, okay, here, here are our inflows, here are our outflows, the rest is market. You know, let's put the multiple on this portion of the revenue. So, in this domain of of earnings, um, right? I'm just thinking for all the advisory firms that are looking at P and Ls, particularly through the past few years, and just the, the particularly wonky volatility of the past few years. Like my earnings kind of move non trivially from year to year, sometimes just because of market volatility alone, because we're we're kind of operationally leveraged to the market. Uh, does that mean as a as a owner and prospective seller someday, like? Am I trying to time this to a good year? Do people smooth these numbers? Can I adjust them? Do we take averages? Like how how much do I need to be worried about, oh, well, this isn't going to be the good year to sell because <laughs> our our earnings number isn't great this year. Like I can't mark to a multiple this year because a multiple last year would have given me way, way more money. Yeah. Well, okay. So the analogy that I use, and this, I have to come up with a better analogy, but I have four little kids and you know it's top of mind for me. So the, so the analogy that I use is when you are deciding to have your first kid and you're like, I want kids, but I also want to you know, go to Paris before you know, I have kids or, well, I want to have kids, but I don't want to be pregnant in the winter. So we'll just wait six months. And like, there's always a reason not to like there's always something to look forward to and be like well okay as soon as this happens then we will <laughs> you know and it's it's kind of you know it's not dissimilar to selling your business you're like well the market's down right now but next quarter it's going to be better or you know why don't i just wait one more quarter because i know that like you know i have clients who said they were going to sign and fund you know by the end of the year so let me just get those but the thing is between now and the end of the year you're probably going to get another new client who's going to sign and fund by the first quarter <laughs> like th like yeah. these are really good problems to have because it means that you have a 
good business, right? Yep. What buyers like to see are healthy businesses that continue growing. So at a certain point, like for better or worse, you just kind of have to draw a line in the sand and be like, all right, you know, let's do this. So that's one answer. The second answer is, you know, if if we go to market, you know, on January 1, right, proposals are probably going to be due right around the end of the first quarter. And, you know, then time will pass and we'll request final proposals, you know, maybe a month or two after that. And, you know, in that time, maybe you, you know, had two or three new clients come in, like we'll true all that up so that you're not just like leaving money on the table. You know, if you're like, I brought in $50,000 of new assets, um, you know, 10 times that is a lot of money. I don't want to just like walk away because we drew a line in the sand on 331 and now it's, you know, 530, right? Um, So all of that, you know, tends to get trued up if it's significant before a deal is done. Um, The question you have to ask yourself, right, is like, I I have to be reasonable reasonable about this because the market's up right now. And, you know, if before signing, we hit another quarter end and the market's even further up, would I be asking for less money if the market was down, you know? So Mm -hmm. it it is kind of a reasonableness test to Mm -hmm. an extent. At a certain point, you just kind of have to say, all right, let's do it. You know, let's see, like my, my business is solid. My clients are happy. I'm bringing in new assets. You know, I still have a little bit of a runway before I want to retire. You know, my employees are, are happy and, you know, they're not going anywhere. It looks like the it's been a seller's market for a few years, so I can probably get a good price for my business. Let's just explore, you know, let's just see. Um, the other thing, right, just in terms of like the nuts and bolts of, you know, is there a smoothing, right, what you were asking before, um, the income statement that we go to market with is what's called a run rate. So, we're trying to get a, as best of an understanding as we can of what your business looks like on a going concern. So we're not taking the last 12 months. We're using your most recent quarter and annualizing it to get like a really solid understanding of what your business looks like today, right? So, you sure. know, if the market was down, you know, two quarters ago, it's not going to affect your valuation currently. Okay. Um, and that gets given to buyers in conjunction with your your assets under management flows for the past several years. So what we like to do is break that out between your new client assets, your lost client assets, and then inflows and outflows from existing clients, and then market. Because buyers like to know that you know, you have been growing nicely independent of the market. So if it has been a bull market for the last several years, and that's the only way you've grown, that's a very different story than if it's been a bull market, but you've also been bringing in a whole bunch of new assets independent of the market. So it's a whole story, you know, that goes into what a multiple should be or what the value of your business is. It's not just, you know, let's look at the last year and figure out a price. So with that domain, can you then help us I don't know like get get to a little bit more of a neighborhood of just so what kind of multiples should I realistically expect or not real realistically expect <laughs> when we start talking about EBITDA and or revenue oh that's such that's such a hard question to answer um what I what I tell every prospective client is you know I like to under promise um but it depends you know it depends it depends on the size of the firm, 
It depends on their margins. It depends on their growth. Um, I mean, I'll say, you know, your average manager is not getting 15 times for their business. They're also not getting six times for their business. I'm talking about EBITDA, multiple EBITDA multiples, Um, you know, but it depends. Well, give us some of those parameters then, right? So the, you know, the the classic ad- advisory firm that I, I see going through. I mean, there's a couple of sides, right? There's there's my highly successful solo, right? I've got probably anywhere from 30 to 50 million at the low end up to even 100 million at the high end. It's like me and a couple of, of staff around me. Then there's a next profile that I'm, I'm probably, you know, two or $300 million. I've got a few advisors and a team that we've, that we built up to over a long time. Then there's, um, you know the proverbial mid-sized firm, like I'm a half a billion to a billion, and 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 growing, but hitting some of the challenge points. So, like, how does it vary across? I mean, if like size and some of those dynamics are drivers, how does it how does it peg out as I go through those different growth stages, or size stages? I mean, I would say there's scarcity value, right? Okay. So, if you are a two, three, four billion dollar firm that is actively for sale you're probably one of very few firms of that size that's up for sale. And people understand the scarcity value associated with that and are willing to put a higher multiple on a business like that. Okay. Um, so because it's going to have a transformational effect on their business, typically. So so if I'm if I'm the multi-billion dollar firm, like low teens, like I could be talking about numbers like 13 to 15 times EBITDA because there's just only so many big firms, big buyers want to deploy dollars. There just literally aren't a lot of places to deploy dollars in big chunks. So I so I get a bit of a premium. So I'm presuming that means now if I get down to my, you know, my next near down, or like I'm a half a billion to a billion growing in that range, like I'm not getting teens anymore if that's if that's what I get with a, a scarcity premium. So now am I in like a nine to twelve kind of range? Is that is that where I I start landing at this size? Yeah, I mean, I would expect, you know, for for a firm that has five hundred million to a billion under management, yeah, I would say, I would say probably, you know, double double digit territory, though not, you know, on the high end the same way that you would see for a, a larger firm. And so then, if I keep drifting down, like if I'm in that two hundred million to five hundred million range, does I mean I like I have to come down a little further? I mean, oh, what I'm in a seven to 10 range or something? Does that, is that where I land at this point? I mean, maybe. I think it's, it's really, it really is firm specific. I think seven is probably low. Okay. Um, I would say, you know, you're probably looking more, you know, in the, in the very high single digits to low double digit territory. Okay. Okay. No two firms of the same size are created equal. Sure. So you could have, you know, a firm with, 300 million under management who's making more money than a firm with 600 right. million right yep. so and they're going to command a well, higher but, multiple than you know a firm that's their same size but you know overweight yep. on their expenses um or who hasn't grown nicely or who has someone you know at the helm who's 75 years old and like right. you know is trying to get out in the next year right like there's so many factors that go into play and and that's why I was kind of talking about scarcity value you know it's not the only um, driver of you know where the multiple ranges are, but it's it's a big one. So so now take us back to just the the buyer types. Like we we had talked about PE, we talked about aggregators and integrators. Are there, are there other yeah, grouping? Are there like boxes that we can kind of <laughs> mentally sort 
um, prospective buyers into as as we're trying to understand the landscape? Well, I think I think you know drilling into some of those categories might be helpful. You know, um, just in terms of kind of like the size and scope of who some of those aggregators and integrators might be. You know, you have. Um, you have firms that are like like we were talking about that have you know private equity backing right who you know maybe aren't doing you know or maybe smaller right maybe they have you know ten or fifteen billion under management they're not the behemoths right um, but they have they have capital behind them um, so they're able to fund acquisitions the way that they wouldn't if they were independent um, and you can contrast those against you know some of the serial acquirers that have come out of the woodwork in the last you know, two or three years who are maybe at, you know, 50 or 60 billion. Um, and then you can contrast those against the ones that you hear about in the headlines, you know, once a week, right? The 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 big, big guys, right? Focus, Hightower, Creative Planning, Wealth Enhancement Group, you know, the, the firms that are announcing deals, you know, every week, right? Um, and then, I mean, I guess on the on the bottom side of that scale, you also have firms that are doing opportunistic acquisitions, you know, maybe maybe you have 400 million under management and you are really good friends with the firm down the street that has a billion under management and they're like, "Well, we're not acquisitive, but if you're looking to retire and, you know, we know that our businesses operate similarly, you know, let's have a conversation." Right? Mm-hmm. Um and and I mean, I guess the the other one that I haven't that we haven't talked about yet are kind of the other financial institutions, right? The um, like the insurance firms, or you know, the you know, some of the wirehouses that uh, will acquire wealth management firms or banks, right? Who are looking to build other wealth management presence, um, or CPA firms, you know, who want to just have kind of like a referral network with a wealth management firm. And are there are there significant differences in in like terms or structure or pricing across these, or is it more just a function of the kind of deal profile you want in the first place? Like if I'm if I really want into out entirely, uh, you know, I, I I may be looking at an aggregator. If I really want to stick around and I want more money to grow, then kind of by definition, I'm I'm typically looking at a PE firm. Like, are there differences in price and terms or does it more tend to be a if i'm looking for certain deal types for me as the seller it tends to group me into certain categories i think i think where you're going to see the biggest price difference is between firms that have capital backing and firms that don't um so you know in the example that i gave of the billion dollar firm next door you know who doesn't have any sort of capital backing, they're funding an acquisition off of their balance sheet, or maybe they're taking out debt. Um, and because of that, you know, if you were to go to the open market with your with your firm, you will likely end up with a better economic deal if you are talking to a firm that has like deployable capital. <laughs> um, but that doesn't. I mean, you know, that's not better or worse, right? It's just it's just a different type of deal. Or maybe you're getting paid out over a much longer time horizon um, because they don't have the money to pay you over the course of two years, maybe they can they can finance it over seven years. You know, so I think the economics are different. I think that that's the biggest difference, I think, between okay. buyer types. Um, but yeah, I mean when you're when you're contrasting, you know, the $15 billion firm versus the 60 versus, you know, the hundred, right? 
that really comes down to the type of environment that you want to sell your firm to. You know, do you want to be kind of a bigger fish in a smaller pond or do you want to feel, you know, completely taken care of? You know, I have, I have sellers who were like, oh my God, the idea of selling to a firm that has 10 billion under management is amazing to me because my billion dollars or my half, half billion dollars or whatever is going to make a meaningful impact on their overall business. You know, they want me to join the board. They, you know, they want me on the investment committee. Um, you know, I am going to have a direct effect on the value of the equity going forward. Right. Um, and other people are like, you know, well, this, this, you know, $80 billion firm can find my successor, you know, and they can take everything away from me. And I don't have to worry about anything other than making sure my clients are happy. You know, the idea of going somewhere where they want me to still be actively involved in <laughs> the business and decision-making and, you know, future acquisition sounds terrible to me. I don't want to do that. Right. It just, it really, and there, yeah. there are so many flavors and variations yeah. of, of that. And it's so, so seller dependent. And what's funny is I see this all the time. What what people think that they want before they start going out and talking to firms often ends up being different once they've yeah. actually spoken to them. And yeah. that's why I like when I'm putting together a prospect list for a seller, um, you know, if it has 10 firms on it, 12 firms on it, I try really hard to, to think, you know, like what is a really good mix that I can put in front of this seller so that they can get a really, really good understanding of the buyer landscape. Um, Because, you know, maybe they're like, well, the last thing I want to do is sell to, you know, this huge firm where my, you know, $400 million isn't going to make a difference. And then they meet with the firm and they're like, oh, this is great. Can we talk to one more right. firm like this? <laughs> you know, I'm like, absolutely. Like, let's bring another one in. Because um, because often you just don't know until right. until it's really in front of well, you. Well, it strikes me though that like there's a couple of different profiles of sellers that they feel like we, we you end out with this. There there's just the like I'm done. I'm out. Right. Like someone just take the whole thing. I'm ready to be done. I would like my check. Like it's time to retire. I feel like that's the like classic. I'm selling my firm and riding off into the into the sunset. But then there's the like I'd like to partially sell and take some chips off the table. But I'm I'm not I'm not really done yet. I would just like to you know rebalance my personal balance sheet. I like to de-risk a little. Uh, but but I want to stay. There's the version that's like. I'd like to sell because I don't want to do the businessy stuff anymore and I wouldn't mind getting a check for that. But I'm actually happy to continue being an advisor. Like if I can if I can tuck into you and you deal with all the other businessy stuff and I can just go back to client things and I get a check for what I built, like that's great. I could be an advisor for a long time to come without the rest. Those are all sort of wind downy versions. Then there's some on the other end of like, no, no, no. I in the classic sense of raising capital, like I want to sell a piece of my firm to get a big old pile of cash because I want to deploy the cash to grow the heck out of this thing. Like it has nothing to do with selling and exiting chips off the table. It's all about um growth and acceleration and outside capital to do it. And then there's even the like the merger oriented pass, like I would like to merge and be part of something bigger. I'm still in growth mode, but I don't want to have to figure out how to solve all the problems and deploy the capital. I'd like to be part of a larger enterprise and 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 be a piece of that and just those are i don't even know if you see other ones as well like those are really different profiles that seem to fit into these dimensions very very differently 
Yeah, I mean, I think that sums it up well. I think, you know, to use another very mediocre analogy, you know, if you think about your typical client base at a wealth management firm, you have you have kind of the same thing, right? You have the, right. you know, the 35-year-old entrepreneur who sold their business and is like, I have I have 30 years, you know, 50 years ahead of me to create wealth out of the wealth that I've already created you know, help me do that. And you're like, great, we'll invest you in alternatives and we'll go heavy into equities and, you know, we'll keep very little in cash. And then you have, you know, your 75 year old teacher who's like, you know, I've been saving everything and I have my pension. Like, you know, can you just make sure that, you know, the next 10 years of my life are really good. And you're like, absolutely. Fixed fixed income you go, right? Um, Right. And, you know, your job as an advisor, as a wealth wealth management advisor is to be dynamic and deploy the right solution for the client's goals, right? And it it is no different when you're talking about M&A and M&A advisory, it's listening to the client and saying, okay, well, what are your right, right, goals? Right. Now let's help achieve them. And, you know, they're, we're very fortunate that the M&A market for wealth management has been so, I mean, there's been so much activity over the last few years and interest has not waned at all. It's only grown. So, you know, now more than ever before, we have more buyer types at our disposal who are available to meet the needs and the goals of the sellers. So how has this landscape changed over the past year or so just with this this spike in interest rates? You know, I know there was there was a lot of industry prediction of there's so much buying activity, it's all boosted by ultra low interest rates for years. I mean, I remember people saying for a long time like all the buying activity is going to evaporate when uh, when interest rates inevitably rise, I guess we were saying for basically ten years after after the financial crisis, but like we finally got into the moment, interest rates have risen dramatically. Uh, so I guess just as someone that does this on an ongoing basis and sees the ongoing flow, like how are you actually seeing the landscape shift in in a higher interest rate environment? Um, so it's interesting, right? I mean, anyone who's kind of been reading CityWire <laughs> has seen, you know, some of the, you know, larger brand name firms have done capital raises over the last 12 months um, because a lot of their earn out payments are due um, and they might not necessarily have the capital with which to pay them. Um, so I think, you know, that, that has happened on the, you know, much larger scale. Um, but on a, you know, smaller scale, um, I haven't really seen much of a change to be honest, you know, um, multiples have not changed. Um, I think what has changed a little bit is, a broader understanding, like we were talking about earlier, of what the multiples that we were seeing in industry rags or, you know, and just gossip um, mean. And I think buyers who stuck to their guns while, you know, talk of all of these crazy multiples was flying around um, have continued to be able to do deals that, you know, when they look at their models, like make sense yep. Yep. Um, and have kind of weathered the rising interest rates. Um, and they're, they're still out there and they're still offering, you know, very decent 
multiples and are still competitive within a competitive landscape. It's just, you know, some of the noise has been canceled out. Right. So now help us understand your business, right? You, you've shared a lot of your uh, expertise around this for, for the better part of an hour with us now, but just get us some speech. Like, what do you actually do? <laughs> <laughs> you do. Uh, that, I guess that would be helpful. So um, I spent my entire career providing M&A advice to the wealth and asset management industry uh, at a, uh, a specialist investment bank. Um, and I, I say for better or worse, all I know is investment banking. So <laughs> um, I set up Turkey Hill um, about two and a half years ago um, with the understanding that, you know, providing M&A advice is the only thing that I have ever done professionally. Um, the question is, you know, how can I improve upon a model in, from my perspective, right, um, that has kind of existed in its in the same form for many, many, many decades? Um and when I set Degree Hill up on my own, I kind of left asset management behind because to me, asset management is a product-based business. You know, it's, it's you know, I'm oversimplifying it, but, you know, it's not overly different from, you know, manufacturing sneakers or, you know, selling shipping containers or whatever. You have product. If the product performs well, then you make money. And if it performs poorly, you lose right. money. Um but it really is product driven, right? You're talking about track records um, and the people who create those. Um, wealth management, by contrast, is the opposite, right? Typically, there is no product. It's just people who really, really care about other people and get those other people to trust them with their life savings and their livelihoods and the future of their children and their grandchildren. It's just, it's just relationships, right? And when it comes time to sell your life's work, of developing all of these relationships, um, you know, you need to you need to turn to a trusted advisor the same way that your clients look at you as a trusted advisor, and the way that a typical investment bank's fees are structured is there is a retainer that gets paid while the deal is being done, and then at the end of a deal there is a success fee that gets paid to the bank, and that success fee is you know, one, two, three, four percent of the overall deal value. And typically there's a minimum. Um, sometimes, you know, the retainer fees will be credited against the success fee, but it will still be subject to that minimum. And in my mind, there seems to be a little bit of a conflict of interest between the M&A advisor and the seller in that the M&A advisor is incentivized to get the highest price and make sure that the deal gets done. So what I have done is I have removed the success fee component and all I do is charge a monthly retainer, regardless of whether you're a buyer or a seller. Um, and by doing that, we are in full alignment. So if a seller decides that they want to go with the third highest bidder instead of the first, because it feels like a better cultural fit, great do that. You know, if you want to, if we're negotiating a purchase agreement and you're like, I, these people are just not the people who I thought they were. I don't want to do this deal. I need to walk away. Okay. Walk away. And by the way, if we're having that conversation and I'm like, 
I hear you, but what they're asking for is market and you're being unreasonable. I'm telling uh-huh. you that because what they're asking for is market and you're being unreasonable, not because I want to get the deal done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's true, unbiased yeah. advice. And the same thing goes for buyers, right? If you, if I'm telling you, like, we need to increase our bid by, you know, half a turn, it's because we need to increase our bid by half a turn, not because it's going to affect how much I get paid. Right. Well, and just it, it strikes me in that frame, right? Just when you get around the dynamics of success fees, and I mean, really, what are functionally commissions at the end of the day, right? If yeah. if if I know exactly what I want and I need someone to help me facilitate the process, I don't necessarily mind paying a commission. Like, I look, someone's got to execute my thing. I'm going to the darn finish line and getting the thing. Like, if you can facilitate me and help me get a good deal, like, okay. I mean, I I. I, I get it at that level. Uh, but but as you noted, like sometimes the best answer is that the deal really shouldn't work out because it's not really a culture fit. It's not an alignment. And now all of a sudden you've created an environment where your investment banker really wants to get paid. So they've got <laughs> right. a very hefty incentive to to get the the deal across the line, as well as just, you know, when you create a world where they're getting paid on a percentage of deal value, like, oh. You can get paid a little bit more as long as you sign a non a longer non compete. Well, that doesn't affect us. So, like, take the higher <laughs> take the higher deal. We'll get a yeah we'll get a better success fee. And like, not to paint everyone doing you bad or nefarious stuff at all, but just as as you highlight, like, there's a you know there is a conflict of interest that gets there in a world where I don't think anybody who's selling wants to take a wildly lower price or anything, but. You don't always pick the top bid because sometimes it has contingencies or strings attached that are not as compelling and it can get a little challenging when the person who's quote unquote advising you on the deal gets paid more if you take the top bid, not the other ones. Yeah. I mean, look, the the comparison that I use for my third analogy of this conversation is, you know, acting as a fiduciary, right? Like many, many times wealth managers will not sell proprietary product or they will not sell insurance right, right? because they're like i want to make sure that my I client got out of think... that environment to go exactly like yes. i, I want to make sure that if i'm telling a client they should be investing in this mutual fund or you know getting this insurance policy it's because they they understand that i think this is truly the best for them not because i'm going to get a cut of whatever you know and and i mean look the 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 advisors who do sell insurance or do have proprietary product are like, yeah, but I would never do that. You know, like I would never, you know, do something nefarious or, or put someone in a product that's not right for them just so I can make, you know, a little bit of money. Right. And the same is true with, with every investment bank, right? Like there are very few, very, very few of any bankers out there who are like, no, I'm going to do a disservice to my client so that I can make right. more money. But how do you convince a client of that? You know, right. like, I, I will tell you, like, now that I'm doing it this way, I do not ever get asked, like, are you doing this in my best interest? <laughs> you uh-huh. know? So, and I mean, you know, like a fully transparent look under the hood, it ends up working out. I mean, not not exactly the same for me, especially when you get into kind of like the larger deals. But, you know, I don't have a team of 10. I don't have, you know, VPs that I have to bonus out. I don't have, you know, an address, you know, in Midtown Manhattan. Um you know, I have very, I have very little overhead. So, 
you know, I'm not taking a percentage of a success fee as what I'm relying on for my income. I'm taking, you know, the full retainer. So from a financial perspective on my end, it ends up working out just fine. Um, And then on the client's end, they're saving hundreds of thousands, if not millions (laughs) of dollars, (laughs) receiving the same level of advice. Um, And, you know, being fully sure that, you know, we are in alignment and working towards the same goal. So, so help me understand what a, what a typical retainer fee is in practice. Like, what is that, what does that look like in an engagement with, with the firm? Um, so, you know, I, I try to price myself kind of in line with other investment banks um, and what a monthly retainer would look like. Obviously, like, you know, there, there are different structures kind of across the board, but where I landed is typically around $15,000 a month. Um, And that goes from, you know, the day we, we say go um, up until, you know, either signing or closing. It depends on the client. Some like to have me stick around. Some kind of feel like once we get to signing, we're done. Um, so, you know, just, I guess for, for easy math, call a deal 10 months from when we start to closing, that's, you know, $150,000 compared to, you know, a minimum that probably starts at, you know, three or $400,000 and just goes up from there at a traditional investment bank. Right. If I'm a, if I'm a, you know, some like half billion dollar firm, I probably have three or four million of of revenue. Like if I'm if I'm just paying a three or four percent success fee, I'm I'm quickly at close to three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, already. and typically minimums tend to be a little bit higher than that. Because overhead. <laughs> pesky, <Right. laughs> pesky, pesky large firm overhead. Yeah. So uh so then I so then I you know then I have to ask like, okay, then like how are you actually able to like do the same service for so much less like where's this where's the slippage why well, is the price gap so big yeah i mean again i there's just no overhead um okay you know i have i have the benefit of kind of being a small business um and not having yeah. to you know pay a staff you know of of five people under the age of 26 um you know i like right i'm willing to do the, the less glamorous parts of a job you know uh-huh. like i don't i don't mind putting together a sim you know i'm happy to yeah. do the research to come up with a really good prospect list i'm i'm limited by my capacity you know like i can't i can't represent 15 firms at the same time because that you know would ruin my reputation if i'm right. able to you know do a really really good job for all of the firms how, how many do you work with at any particular time i'm assuming then you just have a like i can only take up to x firms at a time yeah it's less it's well. less about that and more about how many i take on at the same time um okay. because deals ebb and flow in the amount of attention that they require right. so the last thing i want to do is take on three sell side clients at the same time because then that means that i'm negotiating three purchase agreements at the same time <laughs> or right. i'm doing you know i'm flying out for final round meetings with you know i don't know 12 firms at the same time and that that just doesn't work right but yeah. you know if i can take on you know a client a month or a client every you know a month and a half that works just fine okay and then they end out on kind of the staggered pace because some might get through fast in 6 months some might want all want you all the way to closing that stretches out to 10 to 12 months 
some will consult with you and after three months say like this was really valuable and we've realized that we don't want to sell our firm. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> That's yet to happen, but you know, okay. who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, like I said at the top of the, of this episode, like, you know, for better or worse, all I know is investment banking. So the, the beautiful part of my job is that, you know, I get to have dinner with my kids every night. You know, they're little, I get to put them to bed, I get to, you know, drive them to school most days, and it's great. Um, And I have the flexibility to then, you know, at 8.30 at night, sit back down at my desk and say, all right, West Coast client, it's only 5.30 there, you know, do you have an hour to talk, right? Um, So, you know, it it, it ends up working out. So you lived in larger investment bank environment before coming out on your own into this world. So what what surprised you the most about the path of building your own consulting business around this? Uh, well, let me answer that differently. My my fear was that I was going to just really embarrass myself. <laughs> you know, kind of, you never know what's going to happen. And I mean, we're this, I assume the majority of your audience is uh-huh. entrepreneurs, right? Like well, yeah. putting yourself out there and just hoping that people believe you is terrifying, (laughs) Uh, especially in an industry full of really intelligent people. Um, So I think the biggest surprise has been the amount of people who kind of understand um, and agree with my philosophy. Um, And you know, I, I'm I'm happy that people kind of look at my pedigree and and you know agree that I, I probably know what I'm doing and uh, I I continue to be humbled. <laughs> Truly, this is not you know lip service with the clients that I get to represent, both on the buy side and the sell side. Has just I mean every new client is just like amazing to me, um, and you know I, I I think and I hope that carries through in the level of service that they receive um, and, you know, the negotiations that we go through. I mean, it's like, you know, you get, you get like a new best friend every yeah. time you do a yeah. deal, uh, which is, which is just great. I mean, I, I'm so surprised and I mean, I guess not to sell myself short, but imposter syndrome is a real thing. Right. And um, yeah. Yep. It, it's just, it's just great. You know, it's, it's really, it really has been amazing to see uh how welcoming the community yeah. has been, both you know among other investment banks and you know the wealth management community. So many of us in the independent world often we we end out there because we don't like some of the conflicts of interest in yeah. the world where there's this pressure that you really at the end of the day don't fully get paid for your value unless you 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 get the signature, you get the deal closed, and just at some point that creates some awkwardness and some challenge. So I. I it doesn't entirely surprise me like yeah to take a less conflicted investment banking model to an advisor channel that has a heavy roots in finding less conflicted paths would find some like very good positive alignment yeah right i mean when you say it that way right yeah. <laughs> and i think yeah. you know the the other nice thing has just been you know I I got to cut my teeth for a long time, you know, really understanding the industry, understanding, you know, what is market and who the buyers are and and whatever. And now that I'm on my own, you know, I get to kind of do it my way, right? Which is, you know, nicely, (laughs) right? And, you know, I've found that negotiations tend to be a lot easier 
when buyer and seller feel like they're working toward a common goal, you know, rather than going into a negotiation saying, this is what I want. And anything that you're saying is, you know, no, 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 no. Right. Which I think is, you know, what you think of when you think of a, a, an investment banker, right? But you right. know, w- speaking with the other side and saying, "Okay, well, let's let's think about how I can go back to my client with something yep. that they're not going to, you know, be upset about." Like, let's come up with a solution. Let's, you know, let's be reasonable about this. Let's create a partnership instead of like an adversarial relationship off the start often yields better results. Uh, you know, <laughs> like <how about? laughs> believe it or not, right? Um, and and having the flexibility and the ability to do that, you know, and kind of askew the traditional negotiating tactics and world um, has also been, I think, not only great for me, you know, because my, my hypothesis yes. has continued to be proven correct, um, but, but I think it's also, if I had to guess, not to pat myself on the back here, a little bit of a breath of fresh air. Yeah. <laughs> amongst, you know, the buyers who are used to dealing with, you know, the typical M&A advisor. So what was the low point on this journey for you? Um, the low point? Oh, gosh, that's that's a good question. I mean, it has, it's been two and a half years. So I think, I mean, it's really kind of what, what we just talked about, you know, um, putting myself out there. I was very nervous and continue to be nervous, honestly. You know, I mean, who knows Who knows what gets said when I'm not in a room? You know, there's a lot of room for traditional bankers to say, okay, but here are all of the reasons why working with Turkey Hill is not going to be as good as working with us. Like, sure, you're paying less, but, you know, is a discount always better? You know, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm up against much larger institutions with longer histories. And, you know, I think, I think one of my best assets is, you know, my personality and just kind of getting to know me as a person. And, you know, I can only do that one person at a time through one meeting at a time. Um, So, you know, just really kind of like getting, getting myself out there, having people understand that you're not, you're not taking a discount in value by, you know, reconfiguring the way that you pay your advisor, right? And and kind of shifting the mentality right. um, from, you know, well, you don't pay your you don't pay your MA attorney a success fee. It doesn't mean that they're bad at their jobs. It just means that you're paying them differently. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think, you know, just kind of uh, having the guts, right, to kind of get out there. Um, you know, I'm very active on LinkedIn or I try to be, you know, to just get myself out there being on podcasts and going to conferences and becoming more of a public figure. I mean, it's, it's hard and it's embarrassing. You know, I I say this all the time when I make these videos on LinkedIn, if anyone has seen them, you know, my, my greatest fear is that my nanny is going to come up into my office and, (laughs) you know, look at me talking into Uh my iPhone with a ring light and being like, this is what you're paying me for. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's humbling, and it continues to be humbling. Um, but you know, it's a means to an end, and you know, I try I try hard to look at everything that I've done so far not as like a low point, but a learning experience. You know, and it's uh, I I heard this advice recently, where it's like you know, you're, uh, it's better to put yourself out there before you become huge, right? Because less people are gonna see your mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I like that framing. It's better to put yourself out there before you come huge. Yeah. (laughs) 
So what advice would you give advisors that are like maybe queuing up thinking about a transaction in the in the next few years? Um I would say oh I guess a few things. I mean the advice that I give to anyone contemplating a deal just in terms I mean I get asked a lot, you know, what what should I do, you know, about my financials? Like I'm I'm about to hire, you know, a new advisor, but they don't have a book of business. Should I do it? Or, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, switching my CRM, but it's going to be expensive. Like, should I do it or should I just wait since it's going to get integrated anyway? And my, and my answer is like, you're running your business. Like, please continue to run your business. You don't know if you're going to end up doing a deal. You don't know, you know, like anything can happen. Do not make it detrimental to your business because you think a sale might be in your future. Um, and that and that continues like through a sale process. So I think that's number one. Number two is if you're if you're thinking about, and I guess this kind of is another way of saying exactly what I just said. You know, changing your fee structure, having your clients sign new IMAs. Um, make sure that you're doing it because it's right for your business, not because you are trying to like extract top value, knowing that you're going to be for sale. You know, a year from now, right? Like just continue to work in your client's best interest. Continue to build your business for yourself, because that is what is going to sell your business, not, you know, any sort of like financial mm. finagling that might happen because people see through that. So as as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And and just one of the themes that comes up is the the word success means different things to different people. And so you you build a successful career in the traditional banking realm. Now you're you're uh, off on a successful path with the independent consulting business so the 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 business side is going well how do you define success for yourself at this point um okay well i guess i have two answers for that and the first is a little bit more you know touchy feely um as i mentioned i have four kids and uh three of them are, are little girls and uh, you know this is i i'm not doing this kind of independent of them you know the wealth management industry is male dominated the investment banking industry is aggressively male dominated <laughs> mm -hmm. um and you know most people are employees not business owners um so you know there's a part of me that's just like man you know i'm i'm so fortunate to have built a business that you know, as my girls grow up, my son too, I mean, you know, everyone, I think it's important um, to have built something and to continue to build something that I'm really proud to show to my children um, mm. and kind of, you know, it's, it's so cliche, but it's true. Like, let them know, like, yeah. if you, if you, if you think you can do it, do it. Like the worst thing that happens is you fail and the best thing is you succeed. <laughs> so far, I've been very fortunate that, you know, I, I continue to be referred clients. I continue to build this business. I'm, you know, from a financial standpoint, you know, making more money than I ever thought that I would doing this, um, you know, and, and getting to share that with them. You know, I <laughs> one, one of my girls named one of their dolls after a client of mine. I'm like, I don't know if this is good or bad, but it's, it's something that happened. <laughs> Um, it's a little harder to scale. Yeah, right, right. I'm like, oh, no, no, I keep hearing the name. I'm like, oh, my God, all right. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, from a business standpoint, I think success is a moving target. Um, I think, you know, the last thing you want to do is become complacent. Like, I, 
what I thought was success six months ago is now status quo. And, you know, I continue to set hurdles for myself. Um, You know, not big ones, but you know, it's, it's, it's like a to-do list, right? You know, sometimes you, sometimes you write out things that you already did that morning just to be able to cross it off. <laughs> and then yep. sometimes you write things out that, you know, you're going to do later today so you can cross it out. And then some of them, you know, sit there for two days. And when you cross it off, you're like, oh my God, I'm so happy. I finally did it. <laughs> like, why did it take this long? Um, so, you know, for me, it's hard to define success because, you know, there can always be more to do. Um, I think, you know, what would be amazing is if I saw more people doing what I was doing. You know, if there was another person who decided to leave an investment bank and set up a, you know, retainer-based, you know, M&A consulting service, um, because that means that what I'm doing is resonating. And, you know, I have, I have no pride of authorship. Like I, I think that people choose advisors in no small part because, you know, they feel like that person is trustworthy and intelligent and going to do a good job. And I think, you know, there, there's room for more of me and I I would love to see more of this happening. That would be incredible. (laughs) Well, very cool. I hope we maybe inspire a few people listening to take a plunge and try it out. I hope so too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.